I'm lead pastor Noel Petras, and welcome to the Exeter Valley Church podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. If you're curious about Jesus, looking for a home in the family of God, or feel called to be a part of a kingdom expansion in Exeter, California, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in the Veterans Memorial Building at 324 North Cahuilla Avenue. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or find us on social media. Thanks for listening. Anyone remember uh, Judge Judy? We got any Judge Judy people in, in the house, right? Um, yeah, I was, I was thinking about judges as, we, um, as I studied this week. Um, and I was just wondering, you know, what's your relationship to judges? Maybe you've seen Judge on TV. I, I don't have a lot of personal experience with judges, you know, which thankfully, you know, if you do have a lot of personal experience with judges, we can, we'll, we'll pray for you after service, I suppose, right? But I haven't been brought before many judges. So I was thinking like, well, what is another type of judge that I do have uh, more experience with? And, uh, you know, for me as a coach and an athlete, uh, an official is a type of judge that I have had a lot of experience with. And me and officials have a love-hate relationship, let's just put it that way. Um, I often say that if there's one thing that's gonna keep me out of those pearly gates, it's gonna be the anger in my heart towards those darn officials when they don't make the call the way that I want them to. I'm sure you guys are probably more righteous than I, but uh, I've had a couple moments in fact, uh, when I was a freshman in high school, this is a funny story you'll appreciate. Uh, I was playing basketball as a freshman in high school, dribbling the ball down the court and trying to make a layup. And, and uh, I, I was getting jostled, let's say, and uh, go up and I end up missing the layup. And I was frustrated probably at myself, but I also felt like there was a foul that should have been called. And so I, I turned to the official and I said, call something, ref. And he looked at me, and he got me good on this one. He said, how's this, 42? That was my number. And he teed me up. <laughs> Call something, ref. Oh, yeah, how's this, 42? Anyways, I repented of that long ago. It's still kind of a funny story. But, you know, typically our relationship with officials, our relationship with judges, I think it depends on if we approve of their decision or not. Is that right? You know, if the official had made the right call, I would have been happy with the official but he didn't make the call that I wanted him to make. And so I was a little frustrated with the official that day. I remember uh, Judge Ito. Anybody remember Judge Ito? If you're old enough to remember the O.J. Simpson trial, Judge Ito. The only reason I really remember Judge Ito is because he got made fun of a lot on Saturday Night Live. There were a lot of Saturday Night skits about Judge Ito. Uh, But I can remember as a freshman in high school, I'm going back, freshman year, here we go, I didn't realize. I remember, though, as a freshman in high school at Danube High, uh, the day that the O.J. Simpson uh, verdict was delivered. Um, and some, it's hard to imagine if you're younger, but O.J. Simpson was really popular. You know, he was a celebrity and people liked him. Um, there, that was like his first life, you know. And I remember students at Danube High School being gathered in the quad and flowing out of teachers' classrooms around the quad. Um, watching this verdict being delivered uh, on television. And when the verdict was delivered, a a cheer went up from the crowd. People were evidently in favor of that decision. They were glad uh, at his decision. And so 
they cheered. But anyways, you, you get the point, right? I'm not really talking about the O.J. Simpson trial. I don't mean to get us off track, but you, you get the point. We, our relationship with officials or with judges tends to be, well, do we agree with their decisions or not? In fact, you know, we, we don't have a problem with judgment. Even though we live in a culture that is like, uh, you know, don't judge me, right? That's the culture that we live in, don't judge me. We actually are incredibly judgmental, are we not? And, and the reason that we don't like to be judged is because we don't agree with the judgments. We don't have a problem with judgment. We have, we have a problem with the judge's decision. And, you know, I, I mean, we're look, you know I'm, I'm having fun with this a little bit um, this morning, but I think you get the point, or hopefully you get the point. The idea of judgment um, and submitting ourselves to the decisions of a judge can be difficult. And I believe that right now, our society is completely incredulous to this concept. You know, we're, we're a pretty big don't judge me culture. And, uh, you know, our culture, it's actually led by the, the virtues of this expressive individualism, which essentially is this, uh, this ethos that says, you do you, and who am I to tell you what's right and wrong, right? This is the ethos that drives our day. The ethos that says, I will be my own judge. But we, we enter this passage, we, we step up to the plate, and this passage leads with these words. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Look, Jesus' return will be a return to judge. This is where we get the phrase, judgment day. And Jesus is coming again. And and when he comes, he'll come to judge. And this can be the thing that people don't like about Jesus. People love loving Jesus. People mostly love healing Jesus. But Jesus, the judge, is, is one that some people in our culture have a hard time with. Maybe you've had a hard time with the judgment of Jesus. But one thing that I want to uh, assure you of this morning is that Jesus is a good judge. He's a good judge, and he will do what a good judge does, and you will be glad for it. You will be like those students cheering at the end of time because his decisions will be good decisions. What will his decisions be? His decisions will be to punish evil and to reward righteousness. See here, finally, something we can all agree upon. Does not evil deserve to be punished? What kind of world would it be? What kind of God would God be if he did not punish evil? What do you think of when you think about the most heinous acts? You know, in the news lately, we've been hearing about how Hamas has committed atrocities against civilians, Israeli babies in some cases beheaded. This is evil. Does that sort of evil not deserve judgment? How could a good God not punish evil like that? What about child abuse? molestation. Have you ever been cheated out of money? The God we serve is good. He's a good judge, and he will come to punish evil, and he'll also come to reward righteousness. So what's before us today is, is basically a decision. Wh- which, which side do you want to be on uh, when judgment day comes? So this, this story that we're at today is the final um, part uh, it's actually the final story in Jesus' teaching ministry. So we've been, 
Man, we've been trekking through the book of Matthew, and we are finally to, to Jesus' last words, really, at least his last teaching uh, moments. And this has been a, a three-chapter uh, sermon from Jesus here. We've called it the Sermon on Signs. It's, it's a sermon about what to expect at the end of the world, right? That's the main thrust of the sermon. That's why we call it the Sermon on Signs. And while this sermon has been about the end of the world, I think what we found is this sermon has been mostly about how to live before the end of the world. This sermon has been mostly about how to live in the times between the times. And Jesus is using a picture of the last day, a picture of the day of judgment, to help us learn how to live in the here and now. So this is, we're not just looking into the future, we're looking into the here and now. Jesus' words, how should we live? And uh, I don't know if anyone's Bible calls this the parable of the goat and the sheep, but this is not a parable. This is not a parable. It's, it's highly stylized, and he does use the metaphor of shepherding, a metaphor that would have definitely meant something to this highly agrarian culture that he was speaking into. Um, so it is highly stylized, but this is a depiction of a real-life future event. And it's not so much a story about the details of Judgment Day as it is a story that makes normal the idea that there will, in fact, be a Judgment Day. There will be a day of judgment. We should get that into the normal way that we think about God and his world. This is future history. This is an actual event that will actually happen. So hopefully I've piqued your interest. And now you want to know, what will judgment day look like? So let's go. Verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. The first thing that we learn about Judgment Day is that when Christ returns, he will return to judge, to separate. And uh, his throne, evidently, is a throne of judgment. And, and, and all nations, it says, will be gathered. So when we hear all nations, we should think, number one, the entire world. We're all going to be before Jesus on the day of his return. And it won't matter, Jew, Greek, Gentile, Samaritan. In the end, all nations will be before him, and he won't separate us by nation. He will separate us by the way that we've lived. In the end, nationality will not matter. He'll be separating true disciples from false disciples. And what picture do we have of what a true disciple is and what a false disciple is? Sheep, true disciples, and uh, goats are false disciples. Now, the sheep part, this is like, we get this. He's, there's a lot of, you know, sheep uh, metaphorical language used in Scripture. So Jesus is just carrying on with his sheep stuff. And, um, but the goats, what are the goats coming from? Well, I'm told in ancient Palestine, this would have been a regular practice for shepherds, not these shepherds, but you know, like real shepherds, shepherds without an A. Um, at the end of the night, they would separate the, the sheep and the goats and put them in different enclosures from the night. So Jesus is speaking into this culture and he's giving a picture of the type of separation that will happen. So, what, so who's making it in, right? This is probably what you're wondering next. So the day of Christ's return will be a day of judgment. So who's making it in and who won't make it in? I think we should be asking this question. How do I become a sheep, right? How will we know, or, and then how will we know the sheep from the goats? 
And in this story of the future events of the world, I think we're going to see four things. We're going to see what a disciple is. We're going to see what a disciple does. We're going to see what a disciple isn't and what a disciple doesn't do. So let's go ahead. Uh, First, uh, and this is on a slide, uh, Gunner, a disciple is three things. A disciple is one who comes to Jesus. A disciple is blessed by the Father. And then we'll get into what a disciple does. That was only two things. I'm so sorry. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. So first of all, a disciple is one who comes to Jesus. Do you remember back in Matthew 4, verse 19, his initial call to his disciples was come and I will make you fishers of men. I love this about Jesus. His call is primarily a call to himself. First and foremost, the call of Jesus is a call to come and be with me. He doesn't call us first to do. He calls us first to come and be with him. His first call is a call to come and follow him. And his last call upon his second coming will be to come into his eternal kingdom. In Matthew 11 verse 28, we see Jesus give another call to come. You, you probably, maybe some of you remember this. It's, he said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Again, the call to Jesus is a relational call. It's a call to be in relationship with him. The second thing we see that a disciple is in this passage is that a disciple is blessed by the Father. And I don't know um, about you, but when I read this language, you who are blessed by my father. It reminded me of two things that we've already covered in the book of Matthew. The first event that this reminded me of is Matthew chapter 3. Do you remember that event where Jesus came out to the Jordan River? John the Baptist was baptizing people, and Jesus was baptized that day uh, by John the Baptist. And what, what happens in that scene? The dove comes down, and the voice of God says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. If you're a disciple of Jesus, this is the Father's view of you. Blessed. I love this part of the story because Jesus receives the blessing of his Father before he'd done anything. His position as a son is why he received the Father's blessing. And it reminds me, as it says in this verse, we should think of ourselves as sons and daughters. And how are sons and daughters positioned underneath the Father? How about this? He goes on to say in this verse that we're inheritors of a kingdom. A true disciple, the sheep, a true disciple is an inheritor of a kingdom. Now, if you're a son or a daughter about to inherit something, have you really done anything to earn it? But yet we have this position, and that's why you get your inheritance. Now, I'm sure there's a way to unearn your inheritance, but I know that there's no way to gain an inheritance unless you belong Jesus says we're inheritors of a kingdom. We've already received, as true disciples, the blessing of the Father. This also, this language also reminds me of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. So we're taking a journey through Matthew today. Kind of cool. Here we are at the end, Jesus' final sermon. We can go back and look at the things that he said and the things that he's done along the way. Man, the Beatitudes, I still remember discussing this passage 
in, in our living room. I don't, you know, you guys probably don't remember this, but I remember saying that the, the Beatitudes are the attitudes of being a disciple in the kingdom of God, the attitudes of being. Anyways, it, this reminds me of the language that's used in the Beatitudes, and I, wanna, I want you to focus on this language today as we discuss this passage. See, in many ways, Jesus' sermon on the last judgment is his extended commentary on the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. What does it say in Matthew 5, 3 through 12? It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Or maybe I should say blessed. It's a more modern way to say that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus began his teaching ministry with the greatest sermon ever preached by prioritizing the down and the out. And now what is he doing? He's ending his teaching ministry. And what's he prioritizing? What have you done for the down and out? The least of these. Look, you will be blessed when you go low. And you will be blessed when you go to the lowly. This is the way. Boom, I got it. You guys are supposed to wake up on that. Mandalorian, let's go. This is the way. So that's what a disciple is, and this is key. Discipleship starts from the inside. Before a disciple can do anything, a disciple must be something. But Jesus cares a lot also about what we do, does he not? He cares a lot about what we do, and this passage is clear. So what does Jesus teach us about what a disciple does? This is the next part, next slide. A disciple cares for the least. For I was hungry, Jesus says, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and close you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Again, looking back at the book of Matthew, hmm, this sounds really familiar. This sounds like something Jesus has said before in Matthew 20, verse 26, 27, and 28. He says, whoever wants to become great among you must become what? A servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, the way up in the kingdom of God is a way down. If you want to sit high, you must first sit low. James 1, uh, 28 says this about pure and genuine religion. James, uh, the brother of Jesus, so we think, 
says that pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. That's from the New Living Translation. Does Jesus care about what you do? Yes, Jesus cares about what you do. See, if the way that you are being is not transforming the way that you are doing and the things that you are doing, then you're not being right. So a disciple is one who comes to Jesus. A disciple is blessed by the Father. A disciple is one who does acts of mercy to the least of these. But the passage isn't done. In verse 41, Jesus goes on into what a disciple isn't. So let's take a look and and turn to the next slide. A disciple isn't, verse 41. A disciple, I'm sorry, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So what isn't a disciple? Disciple isn't cast out. False disciples, goats, get cast out. True disciples don't get cast out. This reminds us of Matthew 7. Remember, Matthew 7, Jesus said, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will tell them, Depart from me. I never knew you. A true disciple isn't cast out. A true disciple isn't cursed, we learn in this verse. And this mirrors the woes that we just studied. What's the opposite of blessed be? Woe to you is the opposite of blessed be. So a disciple isn't cursed. The curses, the woes that we read about in Jesus' sermon, these are the anti-beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount. A disciple isn't cursed. Lastly, a disciple isn't charred by the eternal fire. Prepared for who? Prepared for the devil. This is powerful language. Man, this is, you know, and I don't know if you, many of you, maybe all you know is conservative evangelical theology. But there's even a branch of the church that is starting to say that there's no such thing as hell. That there's not a literal hell. The scriptures would argue there is. Over and over and over again. And, and why has Jesus talked so much about hell? You know, we, again, it's like we want it, we, we believe in the Jesus of love. We do, and we believe in the Jesus of love here at Exeter Valley Church. But in order to believe in the Jesus of love, we have to believe in the Jesus who judges evil. Love is to bring judgment upon evil. And Jesus talked a lot about the fire to come for those who reject him. Sometimes Jesus uses the positive examples. There'll be joy. You'll be with me. You should do it. And sometimes he uses the negative examples, all with one purpose, to bring us in. And those of you that, are, that have kids, you probably know this. I know this as a teacher and a coach. And I tell my students, I just gave them a little lecture on Friday. I was like, man, I want to be fun and happy. I want to be the cool PE coach. I want to like fist bump you and be like, yay. But sometimes you respond really well when I yell at you. And sometimes I need to send you to the office so that you'll behave and not ruin it for the rest of the kid. You know what I'm saying? And this is how it is with Jesus. Listen, he, he's the most loving person you ever have met. I guarantee you, Jesus is the most loving person you've ever met. But he gives us these harsh warnings. And sometimes that's what we need. If we're honest, sometimes we need a little kick in the butt, do we not? And what's the point of the harsh warnings? The point of the harsh warnings is to get us where he wants us. It's to bring him to himself. 
So there you go, a little parenting advice, teaching advice, all mixed in one. Look, here's the thing, you guys. There's a legitimate day of eternal punishment coming. And uh, I don't know, some people have said, well, is, is the fire of hell just metaphorical? Or is it actually literal? Well, here's what I know. The scriptures teach that hell is really bad. Period. End of story. Hell is really bad. You don't want to end up there. You don't want to burn in eternity. And Jesus calls you in. He's calling us in. So, because a true disciple isn't cast out, because a true disciple isn't cursed, because a true disciple isn't charred by the fires of hell, a disciple doesn't ignore the least. Notice how position, again, position with God leads to action. Our position with God is what leads us into action. First comes the position. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then comes the action. We see that in the ministry of Jesus, and we see it in our own call. So what does a disciple doesn't do? Is that, that's not the way to say that. A disciple doesn't do this. Verse 42, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these you did not do for me. And again, this is so interesting. The, the wicked and the righteous, they both seem completely unaware of how their actions have affected Jesus personally. Do you think about your actions that way? When you care for somebody, do you ever think that you're caring for Jesus? When you don't care for somebody, do you ever think that you're not caring for Jesus? It would seem that we find Jesus in our acts of mercy This is powerful stuff. That might impact the way that we behave around those who we consider to be the least of these. Do you see the eyes of Jesus in that person on the street, the difficult student in your class, the neighbor that, you know, mows his lawn at 6 a.m. on a Saturday? I don't know. Who's on your list? But if we're honest, we're often oblivious to how our decisions matter. Isn't this what Jesus is trying to get us to see? Your life matters. Your life has consequence. And I don't know when Jesus is coming back again, but I know how we ought to live in the time between the times. We should live with a perspective on investment. We learned that last week. We should be ready so that when he's returned, he finds us fit. And we should care for the least of these because our lives actually matter. And the bottom line in this passage is that our decisions, they don't just matter in this life. They matter in the life to come. They will matter for eternity. There is a day when you will make no more decisions and the Jesus, the righteous judge, will be the only one making any decisions. Sheep and goats, in or out, heaven or hell. Your life matters. So next slide. Jesus culminates his final sermon on earth with uh, these words, verse 46. Then they will go away to eternal punishment. Those would be the goats. But the righteous to eternal life. Look, we don't just get to say we love Jesus as a form of fire insurance. That's not what Jesus is teaching. You know, pray the prayer, 
so you have salvation. All you got to do is pray the prayer, and then you're going to live with Jesus forever. Salvation ain't just saying a prayer one time, I think is what Jesus would say. It's living a life for Jesus. It's living a life marked by his kingdom values. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. And for some, this is a bitter reality. You know, that ultimately, our decisions will lead to ultimate consequences. And uh, I just, I could say a lot about this potentially, but um, I wanted to read one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis, because I think it helps us understand how our decisions are treated by God. So I'll let C.S. Lewis say it. This is a quote from the book called The Great Divorce, which is the, the name that, that Lewis gave this picture of Judgment Day, where there'll be a separation between true disciples and those who are false. Lewis says, and I have it here on this slide behind me, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. In the end, I believe Jesus will give you what you have chosen with your life. Heaven or hell. I think in the end, Lewis would say that hell and heaven are both just the eternal consequence, the eternal destination of the way you chose to live your life. No one's going to hell, Lewis would say, who didn't choose it for themselves. Dang, these are powerful words. How are we doing? <laughs> feeling judged, maybe? You know, the, the Bible calls that feeling conviction. <laughs> the world calls it judgment, but Jesus calls it conviction, and it's his kindness that calls us to repentance. If you're feeling convicted this morning, you should feel glad. There's a Savior. He's going to sit on the throne someday. He's going to judge wicked from righteous, and he's good. He loves you. It's his kindness that would call you to repentance before it's too late. So here's the question. <laughs> Next slide. Are you a sheep or a goat? <laughs> That's kind of silly, right? But for real, you know, at the end of time, when the Son of Man comes to judge the righteous from the wicked, where will you be found? Where will we be found? And I know what a lot of us may be saying, or maybe we've said this before, like, hey, I've been baptized. I've got my butt in the seat on a Sunday morning. I prayed the prayer. I've declared Jesus as Lord. But is that the standard Jesus gives for his decision of separation? Did Jesus say, I'm going to put the sheep over here. Those are the ones who prayed the prayer with their mommy at bedtime when they were four years old. And then the goats over here, and those are the ones that didn't pray the prayer. No, he says that the sheep are the ones who have lived their life by my kingdom values. And the ones that have not, those are the goats. Does your life, do your actions, this is the question that we got to be asking ourselves today. Look in the mirror, the metaphorical mirror in front of us right now, and ask yourself, does your life, do your actions, does your lifestyle bear the mark of a true disciple? How have you treated the least of these? Man, I was so convicted today. I'm so, uh, this week, I mean, uh, today too. Convicted now as I look out and try to preach this to you. Man, 
so tempted to only care about those who can make a difference in my life, to only care about those who will have some influence in where I want to get or what I want to accomplish or who I want to be. How have you treated the least of these? Do you use people like I use people sometimes? Do you snuggle up to those that have something to offer and ignore those who don't? Even in your charity, is even your charity an act of self-righteousness? How many of us can often give just so that we get? I'll give to this so that I get this or that. I'll give to God so that I get blessed by God. I'll give to my kid's school so that my kid can have a, a cool classroom or field trip. Even our charity can just be act of self-righteousness. I'll, I'll give charity just so that I'm right. Man, I'm, I'm so convicted by that idea. I so often give to get. Do I really care for the least of these? Do I see Jesus in the least of these? Three things I want to leave you with today. Last slide. Some of you will remember this graphic. Well, we made this graphic when we were in our living room. Um, three things that I think can guide us as disciples into true discipleship. And I don't know, I don't know how you're feeling right now because there's a, there's a tension that this passage brings us to. And the tension is this. Wait a minute, Noel. Is it grace or is it my performance that earns me a position with God? That's right. Grace earns us a position with God that leads us into action. Grace comes first that delivers us a position, but when we've truly received grace, there's a way of being that leaks out of us. And so I want to encourage you into this grace, and I think there's three ways that I could encourage you to receive the grace of God so that your life would be an outflowing of having received that grace. Number one, behold Jesus. Notice these all have be in them, not do, but be. Behold Jesus. Have you seen Jesus? You know, in Revelation chapter 5, there's a picture of worship at the end of the world. We're going to sing these songs or these words later in our final song, but man, behold, beholding Jesus rightly. Someday we're going to see him face to face, and I believe that beholding Jesus is step number one to true discipleship. And when we've beheld Jesus, we, we accept his invitation to be with him. His call is what? Come, follow me. It's not first and foremost call and do, it's not first and foremost come and do these things for me. It's come, follow me, be with me. Being with Jesus is step number two. And then thirdly, when, when you're with someone a lot, what happens? You start to become like that person, don't you? When you behold Jesus rightly, when you respond to his invitation to come and you spend time with him, you can actually become like Jesus. Jesus' last words to his disciples is that it's time for me to go, but I'm leaving you and, and I'm leaving you with my spirit. And it will actually be better for you with I'm gone, when I'm gone because you will have my spirit. Look, you can be with Jesus, you can actually do the things that Jesus did. You can become like Jesus. You can, come, you, can, you can become transformed by relationship with him. Relationship with Jesus transforms us. And you're like, no, nah, man, I'm a, I'm a sinner. I'm all screwed up. I'm telling you there's hope in Jesus. 
you can be transformed. Like I think Jesus literally expects that our lives will actually be transformed. You're going to act different when you've beheld Jesus, when you've spent time with Jesus. He will make you more like himself. And when you feel like you're struggling with that being like Jesus part, take yourself back to steps one and two. Are you beholding him rightly? Remember that the, the God you see is the Christian you'll be. Are you spending time with him? Are you relying on the power of his spirit? Are you being with Jesus? Because when you behold him rightly, when you spend time with him, you're going to become like him. So ultimately, beholding and being with are the things that lead to us becoming like Jesus. Look, Jesus makes sinners into saints. That's what Jesus does. He makes sinners into saints. He transforms us by his grace. When you've experienced the grace of Jesus, you do not stay the same. Look, come as you are, but don't you dare stay the way you are. Who would want to stay the way that we are? There's transformation for us. I'm telling you, you can have heaven now. You can become like Jesus. You can live the life that Jesus lived. This is kind of radical. Jesus turns sinners into saints, step by step. How's your transformation going? So I believe a fitting response to Jesus' final words uh, about the final day would be for us to stand up, lift our voices, and look to Jesus, to behold him. And uh, it's kind of cool because we have a song titled Behold that we're going to sing next. But in Revelations 5, the Apostle John shares a picture of eternity with us. And I just, you know, we could get caught up in, um, in fire and brimstone. And I think that while sometimes, like, we need to be chided and we need to hear those hard, hard words, I think ultimately the thing that will really motivate us is to see rightly the, the good things that are ahead of us. And uh, so what I want to invite us to this morning is to stand and sing and, and envision in our minds the beauty of the end of times when we are sharing eternity with Jesus. Check, uh, check out Revelation 5.13. John says, Then I heard every creature, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The final picture is a picture of worship. This is eternity for those of us who've beheld him rightly, who've been with him, who've become like him. Eternal worship, Jesus on the throne. Picture this, every nation before his throne. Like Megan said earlier, man, there's, you've seen the photos of the Taylor Swift concert, 70,000 people at SoFi Stadium, concert after concert. 70,000 will be a drop in the bucket, folks. Every nation worshiping the living God who sits on a throne. It's beautiful. Let's stand. Let's conclude our time this morning by getting our eyes on the Son of Man. Get your eyes this morning on the Son of Man who's sitting on his throne. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that we can trust you. I thank you that you're a good judge. And I would even, right now, Lord, for any of us that are holding on to bitterness, or maybe those of us, I just, 
just right now as I was about to pray, I felt like the Spirit put on my heart that there are some of us this morning who are holding on to um, hurt. Like something's happened to you that wasn't right. And it may have been a long time ago. I don't know exactly. It could have been recently, but I feel like some of us are holding on to things that have happened to us. And I've, I've, I just sensed in this moment as I was about to pray that the invitation of God would be for you to let go and trust him. And uh, you can let go um, because he's trustworthy and because he's going to handle it. He will handle all evil. He is a good judge. You can take yourself out of that seat. If that's you this morning, take your seat, out, uh, take yourself out of the seat of judge. Let the good judge, Jesus, do the work. And that might involve forgiveness, whatever, it, you know, letting go feels like for you. But Jesus, we just thank you that we can trust you with that. We, we thank you that we can trust you as judge. I thank you that you're a really good judge, Lord. And I just, I confess with my mouth that I'm, I'm a bad judge. I get mad at the wrong things. I hold on to the wrong things. I'm so glad that it's not me sitting on that throne at the end of days, Lord. I thank you that we can trust you because you're a good judge, Lord. I thank you that you love us so much that you've covered our sin. You've made a way for us to be in relationship with the perfect God, Lord. And we thank you that you're God of holy love who not only will come back to judge, but also bids us to come into relationship with you, Lord. We want to have an experience of grace, Lord, an experience of grace that transforms us. We want to be sinners that are turned to saints because of your grace, Lord. And so we're asking this morning, Lord, would you help us to like behold you rightly? Like do it again, Lord. Maybe we had a day, one day back then when everything was just right, where we had a clear picture of you, but we, we were like, maybe we've lost that picture of you, Lord. Would you help us, God, to go again? We want to see you rightly, Lord. So would you do the work where we've held a wrong view of you? Would you replace it with the truth, Lord? Would you call us to yourself? Do it again, Lord. Call us again, Lord. Back to our first love, would you say to each of these, come and follow me, Lord. And then would you make us more and more and more like you? We want to live the life that you lived, God. It's no fun staying sinners. We want to be saints, Lord. And so this morning as we come to the table, Lord, we just acknowledge we desperately need your body and your blood poured out, broken on our behalf. This is what we need. And you've done it for us, Lord. And we're going to worship you because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, hey, it's Pastor Noel again. Just wanted to say thanks so much for joining us here at the Exeter Valley Church Podcast. And don't be afraid to join us in person on a Sunday morning, 9.30 a.m. at the Exeter Memorial Building.